Heart. You gotta have heart. Miles and miles of heart. What is heart? Heart is running through a return man when the game is on the line. Heart is giving everything you have in practice, day after day. Heart is finding the strength to run down the field one more time when you can barely breathe. The heart in me pumps Husker Red. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Five Heart Podcast brought to you by CornNation.com and hosted by JitteryMonkey.com and the Jittery Monkey uh, family of podcasts. I am Greg Mahochko and uh, special surprise for all of you listeners, usually I say I'm Greg Mahochko, joined as always by my good friend, fellow Husker fan and longtime broadcast buddy Brian Toll, but if you've been on social media in the last uh, 12 hours or so, you know that he is... uh, uh, unable to join us, and uh, we wish him the, the best and a speedy recovery. Uh, so we were planning a, a three-man conversation this week anyway, but with, with Brian out, uh, I'm, I'm just thrilled to uh, bring in my guest at this time. You know him from coordination.com uh, as he has been decoding the Huskers for uh, almost a year now, I believe, uh, or maybe right at a year, and uh, he's been a frequent guest on on. Probably, and, and I know they'll certainly say it, and I, I won't disagree, uh, the number one Husker podcast out there, which is the Big Red Cobcast with uh, Ryan Tweedy and Pat Jansen and uh, uh, all those other um, miscreants is, is the word we like to throw around. I, I, I say that they are the number one Husker podcast. Uh, that That's uh, no embellishment. Uh, they are the locomotive driving the Husker podcast train. And the Five Heart Podcast is like after a train heist when the villain, you know, pulls the pin. We're in that part that no longer has an engine, so we tend to fall off a little bit. Uh, but we come back as we can. Uh, very excited that Haas Reuter is joining me. Haas, welcome to the Five Heart Podcast. Thanks for having me, Greg. How's it going? It's going well. It's going well. It's been a, a uh, really unique week in uh, Nebraska Cornhusker football news. Um Let's start with the events that happened first last Saturday. Uh, $820,000, I believe, was the number that I heard that Nebraska paid to get Northern Illinois University to come to Lincoln. And uh, nobody expected what we saw last Saturday, Hoss. Yeah, I, you know, I sure did. That's, that's for sure. Um, it became pretty apparent after the pick six that Lurie had. And after that, you know, the mental, it was just a real evident that we were not very mentally tough. Has that been, it seems like that that has been a, a, a dilemma or a, a, an issue that has plagued Nebraska teams for a decade, would you say? I mean, we, we had Tommy Armstrong, who was physically tough, and, and, you know, he came back out, jogged onto the field at the horseshoe a year ago after being knocked out and sent to the hospital. But even when the chips were down, and, and I mean, Tommy's a, a fighter and a scrapper, but it didn't seem like focus, you know, and improvement was always there. It, what is it about this, you know, program over the last 10 or so years that they just haven't had that, that mental edge? Well, I think a lot of it stems from a lack of, you know, physical, athletic talent it's always easier to be a little bit mentally tougher when you're physically superior to your opponent. But that's 
you know, if you're not, if you're more even with them in terms of talent or you're at a talent disadvantage, that's where you got to have the mental toughness, you know, just to go out there and put the blinders on and, you know, not pay attention to the noise around you. I mean, I know that's the most coach speak, you know, you're (laughs) ever going to hear on a Friday night, but um, we just haven't had really, you've only seen that in the 2015 Michigan state game under Riley. And before that, I mean, mental toughness, it's just not been a, you know, a hallmark of Nebraska football in the new millennium. Would you say when we go back to, uh, the Polini era and the win at home again, you know, at, at the time it was the biggest deficit ever overcome when they beat, beat Ohio state with it. Was that, I mean, that was to me, you know, another instance where they, where they showed a little bit of that mental grit and, and, and determination. Yeah. I mean, uh, kind of sparked by Levante's strip of Braxton Miller. Definitely. You know, and that you need that spark that kind of really, you know, have a belief, you know, something to rally around to uh, start coming back, you know, from a deficit like that. And before a game like that, really, I mean, you might even have to go as far back as like the mental toughness that the team showed under Callahan in 05 going out to Boulder as, you know, what was it, 17 point underdogs against Colorado and winning 30 to 3. I mean, those are the more notable displays of mental toughness I can really think of in the post Osborne era. We'll put a pin in that um, because just before we started recording, I said, you know, I want to want to do a little introduction to the listeners to you. Uh, let's hear a little bit of your background, Haas. Uh, uh, I mean, you've got, and, and I don't think anybody at Coronation will dispute this. You have one of the best minds that we have as far as contributors go, um, and and the way you see the X's and O's and, and like I said, anybody who's ever, you know, clicked one of those headlines on Facebook or Twitter or, or coordination.com to say decoding dot, 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 uh, where, tell them, tell me, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and, and, uh, uh, wh- I don't know, maybe how, how well versed you are and, and, and why, why your passion is, is so much the, the on the field, you know, between the the you know end zone to end zone goal line to goal line X's and O's, really strategy football. Um, I'm well, well. Let's just start from the top. Yeah, I'm a 26 year old non traditional student at UNO. I'm going to school to be a history teacher and a high school football coach. And um, I just really got interested in the X's and O's of the game ever since I got to, my dad took me to my first Nebraska game. In 2002, it was against Troy State when Dewan Gross ran back two punts for a touchdown. Immediately afterwards, I thought Jamal Lord was the greatest quarterback who had ever lived. <laughs> I, st- I still have an affinity for Jamal Lord even now. One tough hombre. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. Like, I was always so interested in how things worked on the football field because I think anyone who knows me will attest to this. I'm not very mechanically inclined anything if it has to do with the car i have no idea what i'm talking about uh i can change tires i can change oil that's about it i'm pretty limited but as a conceptual learner with football i mean that's kind of where i find my niche so it as far as the the learning process that you've you know put yourself through is it just for lack of a better term film study or are you out there reading books from from some other you know great coaches things like that that because 
again, and I, I keep falling back on these decoding because it's kind of what you're you're known you're so well known for your decoding, you know, Langsdorf's or last year Banker. Uh, in the off season, it was decoding Diaco. You're so well known for it that other Husker sites are kind of stealing your ideas. Um, but what? Where did you you know acquire all of this knowledge? Um, really. Starting out after I got really big into Nebraska football in 2002, um, just started. I had a friend of mine actually on one of the school buses in Gretna teach me how to draw football plays. And of course, in 2002, it was all short side options and uh, quarterback keeps, and, you know, the Solich era, staples sure. of the Solich era. And um, then after that, you know, I started playing football in seventh grade and I was just really interested in, you know, the X's and O's and everything. And then from there, you know, through high school football, you know, being an offensive lineman, you learn blocking schemes. And then, like, even now, it's kind of, you know, my Amazon order list, you know, if you go back <laughs> over the past two years, probably about 30 or 40 football coaching books and, you know, stuff like that. And YouTube's a great resource. Twitter is a great resource. I think most of my Twitter timeline is retweets of cool plays from the weekend in college or pro football. Just uh, a lot of reading. And I, I, I mean, obviously, it, when anytime it's something that you're passionate about, you know, it, it, you can, you know, read it a lot easier. I was listening to another podcast uh, uh, about a week ago. Uh, it was a Nerdist podcast. Chris Hardwick. I don't know if you are. I'm a nerd, so I don't know if you follow any. He, if you watch The Walking Dead, he's the guy who hosts the talking show after that. But he was he was actually talking with uh, the son of Mel Brooks, uh, Max Brooks, who is. Um, I don't know if he's like a bigwig in the military, aside from doing some comedy and things like that, but he's talking about reading all of these tactical strategy books and how it's like, yeah, they can be kind of boring. And I'm like, I, I could see how there's no there's no narrative there. Uh, but in in reading these coaches' books, obviously it's, it's something you're very passionate about and something that you're going to be leaning on uh, to, you know, benefit you in your career as a high school coach. Um and I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm no Nostradamus, but I'm, I'm guessing that probably second year head coach, you're going to start putting some championship banners in the gyms of that high school, man. I'm just, uh, the knowledge that you have brought to, uh, coronation to the Slack chat rooms, um, you know, not ever stuff that I would have ever, you know, seen or recognized, um, which brings me to the topic of our next conversation Matt Farniak, because I know that mm-hmm. you were really high on this guy in the offseason, and you had even said if we could, you know, no no disrespect to David Neville, but if we could just get Farniak at, at right tackle and Cole Conrad out at center, and we actually saw that situation play out against Northern Illinois, and it just did not work well for the Huskers. What happened? Um, a lot of it uh, goes back to just the lack of focus and preparation. Um when, especially at the offensive line position, because as I said in this week's uh, run game charting article, uh, playing offensive line is the most unnatural phase in football. Just nothing about that position comes natural to the human body. And to, in order to play aggressively and confidently, you have to be focused and prepared. And we saw so many, you know, missed assignments and, you know, poor technique and not sustaining blocks and just there's no energy along the offensive line a lot of that just goes back to the preparation 
of Monday through Friday from them. And it's just really apparent that something's lacking. I know uh, in listening to this week's Cobcast, uh, one of the uh, – anybody who's listening, you should listen to the Cobcast. Uh, everybody should. Um, it drops usually, I think, Tuesdays on Coordination. But if you subscribe on iTunes like I do, you get it a day or two ahead. Uh, but Ryan was saying that what Nebraska needed to do, and he said what they needed to do immediately was fire uh, Kavanaugh. Obviously, that didn't happen, and a little later in this show, we'll get into the firing that did take place, Uh, but that is, I mean, obviously, there has to be that connection between, you know, quarterback and receivers, or quarterback and running back, you know, handoffs, things like that, but there needs to be cohesion most up front, and and what we saw last Saturday was no cohesion, and, and therefore, Tanner Lee was rushed, made... Uh, several bad decisions um, and didn't have a whole lot of time to to really evaluate the field and make good decisions. Yeah, and a lot of that went back to we, we tried to adjust a few things, our pass protections, especially for, you know, to keep Lee upright. And a lot of the problems where you'd still see, you know, guys turning the wrong way or, you know, Mikhail Wilbon would, you know, slide to, uh, take the end man on the line of scrimmage and they would already have, you know, a running start on getting around the protection. I think it was that Sutton Smith, that one D end of theirs. Mm -hmm. And it was just, you know, guys weren't in sync, especially a little bit more so in the running game. Uh, Pass protection wise, they were just sending, I mean, our heads were spinning after a while, which goes back to not being adequately prepared on, you know, what they like to do in terms of their stunts and blitzes and passing situations. But, um, yeah, in the run game, I mean, you saw a lot of uh, Tanner Farmer, excuse me, uh, coming off of his combo blocks with Farniak way too soon, letting a DT, you know, stuff Wilbon in the backfield. And I think there's a run. I want to say it was on the first drive. It might be the third or fourth play that Wilbon went to run to the right on the uh, front side of a duo gap duo play. The whole front side was just, you know, penetrated by the D line. He had to cut it all the way back across to the left. It's just the little thing, you know, those look like big plays, but generally, especially against a front like Northern Illinois, who were bigger, you know, and stronger than have the size and talent advantage. It's just things that are relatively simple that we're not getting done. And that goes back to, you know, coaching, focus, and preparation. Tanner Farmer's an interesting name, and I'm glad you brought him up. He uh, is from Highland, Illinois, uh, which is about 15 minutes away from my hometown. Uh, so I I was pretty psyched uh, when I saw that he was going to become a Husker. Same with Vincent Valentine, who's from nearby Edwardsville. I mean, I've been through that town, you know, a, a bunch of times. Of course, now he's, you know, Super Bowl champion with the Patriots, but but Farmer, you know, he had this Greco-Roman wrestling background. And when when I learned that, the one thing that I kept thinking was going back to the know, 2000 movie, I think it was The Replacements, I think it was 2000, Keanu Reeves, Gene Hackman, and they're talking about bringing in this sumo uh, wrestler to be a you know an offensive lineman. They're like, why would you bring in a sumo? He's like, because it's blocking, it's pass protection. So I thought that, that Greco-Roman wrestling experience and how he was like a national champ, you know, at, at 16 or 17, something like that. I thought that'd be a big help, but he just has not ever really, I don't know, 
met the expectations that I had, and I don't know if I had unreasonable expectations, but uh, you know, definitely wanted the kid to do well, and it just doesn't seem like he's he's quite figured it out yet. No, I I agree with you 100 percent on that, and you know, when he's able to get his hands on somebody at the first level at DT in run blocking, once he's got his hands on him, you know, he's he's mauling him off the line of scrimmage. But if he's asked to, you know, pick up a slanting D lineman or climb up to the second level to pick up a linebacker, it's, I mean, I don't want to be too critical of the guy, you know, but sure. he just he just struggles to, you know, be able to make those movement blocks, you know, to seal off a hole or, you know, keep, you know, a linebacker from plugging a gap. I, I think he would make a better center truth be told, you know, that kind of functional strength that mm-hmm. he has to, once he locks onto a DT, he's able to, you know, win the one-on-one battle. I think you'd make a better center, but, I mean, evidently I mean, Cav and the powers that be have other thoughts on that. So, would, aside from the, the, the Monday through Friday preparation, I mean, the on-the-field stuff, it seems like a big thing that has, has been a burden to the offensive line uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you're you're the lineman guru, and I'm, you know, I'm not. Uh, my radio background is be like, yeah, you know, I remember going down on the field after high school games and doing post game interviews with quarterbacks and running backs, and they always said I couldn't have done it without my O line, which is always nice to hear, you know. Um, but uh, it just seems like it's a, a footwork thing. They they can't they get their feet to do what they need to do. To, to be successful is that is that oversimplifying the issue oh uh, no it's just like you know it's just like with a car you know the tires are where the rubber meets the road mm-hmm. footwork much the same for an offensive line or offensive lineman you know that first step out of a stance is getting them pointed in the direction that they need to go and then that second step is their power step and generally especially with you know against real fast attacking defensive fronts, you got to have, you know, your second step in the ground as soon as possible because your second step is where you're going to be really generating that upward force, upward lift, you know, to get underneath of the defensive lineman and start driving it back. And a lot of the times we struggle to get those steps made before contact is initiated by the defensive lineman. And the quicker a D lineman is, the quicker that second step has to get in the ground. And, you know, we just haven't been able to do that the past, you know, well, I, I'd be inclined to even go as far back as saying, you know, since Dominic Rayola. We talked at, at, right at the top of the show about mental toughness and about that uh, pick six that ended Nebraska's opening drive last week. That was – that looked – I'm trying to figure out the, the best way to say this without sounding, uh, you know, without being accusing uh, of anyone. But that almost looked like – you know they had a, a, a drive chart, and because because he just picked his spot. What what happened there? Because he he cut in, was in the backfield before the receiver was turned for the ball. Did it? I look at it from from a very skeptical point of view, and I'm not you know obviously saying that anybody did anything wrong. But what happened on that play particularly? What broke down that allowed uh, for him to you know come away free and clear with that and and you know, take it back, you know, house it 90 yards later. Um, well, you know, you got the bubble screen was to DeMornay in the inside slot position. And so you got Stanley 
on the outside blocking the corner or the first color that he sees. And for Northern Illinois, they had that Shawan Lurie lined up, you know, in a press alignment over Stan. And at the snap, you know, he gets, you know, Stan doesn't even get a piece of him on the block. And Lurie's able to knife in there and pick off the pass. You know, he's off to the races. But what happened is, you know, it's kind of twofold. One, Northern Illinois was in a cover two cloud coverage where the corner is the force player on that side. So he has run responsibility to the outside or he breaks on any outward breaking route by, you know, either of the receivers to that side. So the second he read the width step on the bubble screen by DeMornay, he, he gambled a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, to make that interception, but he was able to do so because, you know, being in the red zone in a condensed area, he had safety help over the top. So, you know, if we would have, if it would have been like a slant bubble play, you know, and Lee decides to throw the slant to Stanley instead, it's it's not a touchdown. You know, it might be going down to the two or one yard right. line, but, you know, they're limiting the gain, all, you know, things considered. But the coverage and, you know, Lurie just making a heads-up play to jump that route or what combined for that. A lot of people said that Lee should have handed the ball off on the inside zone portion of the play. But, you know, just kind of, you know, in the spirit of, you know, fair play here, that play likely would have been blown up. Wouldn't result in a pick six, but would have been blown up as well because of the front side penetration, you know, that occurred over uh, Tanner Farmer and uh, Matt Farniak. We saw a, a really going back to the Oregon game. We saw a really nice adjustment that that Tanner made and uh, Stanley Morgan as well to recognize it on on that safety blitz that or a corner blitz. I mean that resulted in the touchdown. But because as you were saying, because of the condensed field conditions weren't right for that to have been successful, if they even had time to to look that way with with the the over the top help from the safety. But something better could have happened. You know, worst case scenario, you know, this is one thing that, you know, we always hear from announcers, you know, have for 25 years or more is, hey, if it's not there, you just got to tuck it, you know. But it seemed like there was, because of the bubble screen, because it was a quick release type of design anyway, there was no time to, to do anything. And Lurie was there and, as we mentioned, gone to the races. But that was, when, when you're able to march the ball down, you know, the feel like you had on that opening drive and to have, you know, points taken off the board for you and put on, you know, for the opponent, that to me looked like a really demoralizing moment. And, and uh, of course, Nebraska didn't score the entire first half, which is uncharacteristic, you know, especially at home and especially against a, you know, a, a Mac team. But it just didn't seem like, I, I don't know, their heart wasn't in it. I, some, something was off all last week. Yeah, I, I would have to agree. I And that was completely different than what I thought we would see on Saturday. I thought we would have seen a team, you know, that kind of grew up a little bit in the second half of that Oregon game. Exactly. And then to see that effort in the first half was, you know, it was just really disappointing. And you expect more out of it. And, um, even though I've been critical of the offensive line, I think that the baseline talent is there to be a decent offensive line. And so, you know, it's just Saturday. Last Saturday was a really disheartening day, all things told. And 
defensively, I know we're still, you know, in the early stages of, of the 3-4, but the defense did hold opponents scoreless for five quarters, you know, until that, that game-winning drive on, you know, a week ago against uh, the Huskies. What have you seen from Diaco's uh, defense and his schemes that you have liked, and also what have you seen that that maybe you didn't like? Um, you know, in the, since the second half of the Oregon game started, I've liked the fact that we're covering down on their slot on opponent slot receivers. You know, we're not just leaving open space there for them to throw those pre-snap bubble and hitch screens. And um, the defensive line, I mean, if you know, the one unit on the team that everyone can unequivocally say is playing really well right now, even though they're, you know, not getting pressure, it's not their job, is that defensive line. Uh, Mick Stoltenberg eating up blocks in the middle, DeAndre Thomas showing some really good promise for a true freshman, the Davis twins as well. But um, the only thing I haven't really liked, you know, is it looks like we're still trying to kind of get the hang of some coverage and, you know, coverage checks based on what the offense comes out aligned in and then it would just be you know the the debacle against Arkansas State even though it's you know three weeks ago now still kind of you know is a sour taste to right. give up that many years. I'm glad you mentioned the Davis twins uh, Carlos and Khalil I really thought that uh, you know they had a sort of coming out party against Northern Illinois. Uh, you know, they, they both on the field at the same time. They were both able to be disruptive and do some nice things. And I know even though you said and and uh, the, the conversation got heated in the Slack chat room uh, during the game between John and, and uh, somebody, one of the, I know it wasn't you, but it was somebody else, but they're, you know, saying how it's not the defensive line's job to get pressure on the quarterback, but it's to, you know, distract or disrupt the offensive lineman to allow an opportunity for the linebackers. We we understand that, but but it was nice to see those two monsters get in there and uh, you know just doing things like knocking down a pass. Uh, I believe that happened in the first half, or you know, get in the face, cause a disruption. I, I was really pleased with what I saw from uh, Carlos and Khalil last week. Oh, absolutely! You know, to see that from Khalil. I mean, I was saying to some of my friends I was watching the game with, you know, it's always nice when you see a second-string guy make a play like that in the game and play with some juice, you know, some energy, and show, you know, that he's gunning for that starting job, you know. The expression kind of borrowed it from the Rams offensive line coach from Hard Knocks last year. You know, he's got some dirt bag in him. You know, he (laughs) plays, you know, the the game, you know, pushed the limits a little bit. So it it was nice to see that because, Again, you know, kind of what we were saying about the offensive line, you know, being kind of lacking energy. You see that in a lot of other positions on the team, too. But um, I think that may have been me in the Slack chat room who got heated with John about oh, the it? defensive line. That, that sounds like it's right in my wheelhouse <laughs> during the game. Um, I think everyone watched the game with me would attest that I'm not exactly a well-adjusted individual. I, I like how you used use that phrase, juice, and I know you've used it several times on the Cobcast. Uh, explain to the listeners what you mean by juice, because when I hear it, I think that you can you know take out the word juice and put in the word fire. You know, you've got that fire. Is that about the the uh, the nuts and bolts of it, or or is there more to the term? or the phrase juice when, when you use it in that context? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, fire and juice, they're synonymous. Um, I just, you know, juice, you know, to me, it's like, you know, you only get 12 of football games guaranteed a year. I mean, you should be excited and just ready to rip someone's head off every game. Every Saturday, your preparation, Monday through Friday, should be, you know, to completely dismantle the, you know, the opponent. You only get 12 of them a year. You're doing something that people would love to do. Why not be excited? Sure. You know, show some, you know, show some energy and, you know, push the limits a little bit. You get, you get a penalty like, you know, an unsportsmanlike conduct or a holding penalty or something like that. Those are effort penalties. You know, as a coach, you can live with those. You can't live with, you know, legal procedure penalties, right. stuff like that. But, you know, the and, stuff that just, you know, that little extra effort, you know, that's what's been missing. You know, that and, you know, some amazing talent on, in the trenches on both sides of the ball, you know, at Nebraska for the past 17 years. I, I, I And I like how you said, you know, the um, – you know the holding, or uh, you know those types of penalties being a little bit more forgivable uh, because they are their effort uh, penalties, uh, <laughs> aggression exactly. penalties. Um, what I learned from the last, really the last six quarters, give or take five or six quarters, is how valuable Trey Bryant is to this offense. Because, and, and this is not a, a, any disrespect to uh, Mikhail Wilbon or Divino Zigba, who we finally, you know, found him. We, you know, his picture was finally taken off the, the back of the milk carton. Um, but Bryant is special. And we finally had an opportunity to see that. And then, you know, just as it happened, you know, he, he's had this uh, uh, recurring injury that, that popped up again against Oregon. But he can do things on that field with that football that the other guys can't. And and we missed that, I think, against Northern Illinois. Would it have changed the outcome? I don't know, but I think it would have uh, made us a little bit less, you know, one-dimensional because I really felt like at times maybe the play calling didn't have as much faith in, uh, in Wilbon as I think he's capable of doing. But, I, you know, they, they were a little pass-heavy there, I thought. Um, and, and I didn't look at the stats, but... Brian is, is someone who can do a lot of things on that football field. And I, and I just think that with him going down with that injury, uh, you know, really caused uh, us to, to miss him quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the first, you know, first game against Arkansas State and then the first three quarters against Oregon, I mean, we were, we were able to run our full complement of the running game because Brian's just that kind of runner. He's an inside runner, an outside runner. You know, good vision good balance does not exactly a top you know doesn't have that like fifth year that Amir had you know hitting the open field sure but just a solid all-around back and then you saw after the injury you know it kind of altered things you know in the running game again you know no disrespect obviously intended towards uh Mikhail Wilbon but also altered things in the pass protection game where Wilbon struggled a little you know it's unfair to say he struggled you know entirely in pass protection because there's sometimes where three guys broke through he's only able to pick up one but will or bryant is just such a stalwart pass blocker that you know you just can't get back soon enough well let's talk about the events that took place the tail end of this week on thursday we learned that uh, in the near future we're going to have a new athletic director as sean eichhorst was fired how do you think it was handled as far as uh, uh, one of the regents, Ronnie Green, 
Uh, is that a regent job to, to make that call or at least make that announcement? But uh, what do you think that means for not just the football uh, program, but Husker athletics in general? Well, I, I think it shows that Nebraska is not content just to, you know, continue with the state of affairs of the men's athletics, athletic teams right now, you know, football, basketball, and baseball being what they are. And I think it sends a message that, you know, it's, you know, with top-down leadership in the athletic department, you got to go out and get, you know, a top-flight AD. You know, Nebraska had their pick of the litter with ADs with Bill Byrne, you know, in taking over for Devaney in the 90s. And um, I just think you have to have that strong leadership. And not saying, you know, that I thought I, – I like Sean Eichhorst personally. But um, I just think that, you know, they felt – they must have felt like there was something – endemically inside the athletic department that need to be addressed. And I'll, uh, I'll be curious to see, you know, where this leads for the fortunes of uh, the big three, you know, Nebraska football, basketball, and baseball going forward. I would almost venture to say, um, and no disrespect to basketball, I would almost say that the big three at Nebraska, uh, or, or may, I don't want to exclude anybody. We know football's one, but I would almost say that volleyball has to be in in there as well. As far as you know, the, one of the bigger, more marquee programs that uh, the university has, because I mean, they're and and this was raised. See, Tweety Pat, I do listen because I, I remember you guys saying uh, that this is you know it, it might be one of the only women's athletic programs that's self sustainable in the country, outside of maybe UConn women's basketball. Uh, the Nebraska women's volleyball program, you know, they don't necessarily need money from the football team, you know, the all the money that that brings in. But I'm I'm in agreement with you. Here's you know a lot of the, a lot of the debate going now is do you get a Nebraska guy or do you you know get just the best out there? If I don't I don't want you to you know do any drafting or anything like that, but but uh, do you have a short list of, of names you'd like to see take over? Uh, yeah, you know, I would, I'd really like to see Chris Del Conte. Who, you know, Brian mentioned that article from yesterday from Texas Christian. And uh, Bernard Neer from Stanford's another name to, I think we should look at. And obviously, the you know, Bernard Neer from Stanford is a little bit for selfish reasons if we have to make a change with Riley. <laughs> David Shaw is basically my uh, favorite college football coach currently right now. So um, I'd be totally cool with that, obviously. Yahoo Sports uh, had an article out, I believe. If it wasn't Friday, it was late Thursday, saying that Nebraska's not you know, the destination job anymore. I don't know if they were talking football or I think it was because of the I-Course firing. I believe it was you know, athletic department or, or uh, athletic director. How much, if if it's not seen as a top tier, you know, again, nationally, we're homers. So, you know, still, you know, number one in our programs, number one in our hearts. But if it's not, if it doesn't have that type of, uh, I don't know, vision or, or or spotlight on it, you know, that that shine that it had certainly 20 years ago, how much money would it cost to get, you know, someone from Stanford if it's, seen maybe not even as a lateral move but in in some eyes maybe seen as a as a downgrade going from stanford to nebraska and i i, I don't say that to be blasphemous uh fans i'm just saying 
if if the perception is that Nebraska is not a you know top tier job destination job anymore, then maybe you know some people consider Stanford that job. And, and in that case, how much money do we have to throw at at them to to get them over you know from from the Pac-10? Or are we talking like AD or football coach? Uh, we'll go AD right right now. I mean, I, I think football coach probably is going to end up making a little bit more because they get a little bit more spotlight. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it, do you have to throw – and I don't need a specific number, but do you have to throw a considerable amount of money to get someone from, you know, being established at Stanford to leave there and go to Lincoln it, because it's, again, that perception is that Nebraska is not that top-tier program anymore? Yeah, I think you do. Um, I think you got to offer every incentive. I'm, a lot of people think that it's not that top tier program anymore, but it can be. Oh, sure. It's just a matter. It's just a matter of redefining. You know, kind of. I don't want to say redefining core values because you know core values in a place like Nebraska are, you know, near and dear, you know, to the hearts and minds of the good people of the state. But you know, just redefining. You know, what are we going to stand for? you know, as an athletic department, you right. know, what kind of culture, you know, good communication amongst all the different, you know, athletics programs and clear and consistent expectations. And I think that, you know, you throw a lot of money at someone, you know, like a uh, Chris Del Conte or Bernard Muir. And then from there, you know, you, with your athletics coaches, you know, you, you spent, you know, spare no expense bringing on, you know, coaches into the program and, it's just one of those things that yeah, you have to offer that incentive because as much as I love Nebraska football and Nebraska athletics, it's one of those things that it's not, you know, in the minds of a lot of people around here and in a lot of coaches' minds as well. The expectation to win is already higher than us. Right. But there's also the expectation that you have to win a certain way, which obviously, you know, from the conversations in the Slack room, you know, you know, that I have a different take on, you know, the winning <laughs> a certain way, but, um, which might be considered blasphemous, you know, to a lot of people. But, um, I just think that because there are a little, there are some headaches, you know, that accompany, you know, a job like Nebraska of much that is given of much is expected. You know, I think I butchered that saying pretty badly, but I hope the point got across still. Um, and, and is it, yeah, is it because, you know, for lack of a better term, ne- the Huskers are the only game in town. I mean, you got the Chiefs who are nearby. You got the Broncos who are not so much. I mean, Minneapolis, you know, things like that. But uh, you know, the, the Vikings. But as far as football goes, I mean, there's no other school in the state that has football. Uh, there's another school to the northeast a little bit that might may or may not play basketball once in a while. And I know we've got some some uh, people who root for the big red in the fall and then switch allegiances, which I've never quite understood. Um, I have the Jasker and the coordination staff. <laughs> I admit that. Uh, but it, I mean, is the expectation, is the expectation high or, or maybe the pressure high because it's the only game in town because, you know, they did used to win an awful lot back in the day or you know a combination of everything and and what is going to be the new expectation i mean nine wins with Polini wasn't enough you know um what what's what's the new expectation because 
I, I we're not going to win a conference championship this year. I don't think. I'd, I'd love to be proven wrong. Um, what, what's a realistic expectation for this football program? You know, going forward, I think you know this year notwithstanding, I think a reasonable expectation is that you win the division three out of every five years, and you know you get to Indianapolis and you you know you give it hell against whoever you know comes out of the East, and I think as long as you have an identity and a you know a, a culture identity and a scheme that you recruit to and you coach really well, I think that those expectations take care of themselves eventually. Uh, Nebraska for the first, you know, 17 years of this new millennium have been a little bit too, um, we've been a little bit too obsessed with writing the last sentence of the book and expecting whatever coaching staff to get to the end of that book writing their own story, but it has to align with our conclusion. We're demanding that it's done a certain way. We just need to hire the best out there and let them do their jobs, recruit and coach what they know. And um, I think the rest takes care of itself and the expectations become self-sustaining after a while. I'm going to ask a very difficult question um, that I don't think I've ever asked anybody individually from coordination before. So congratulations, you're the first. Can Mike Riley get us back to that championship level? National championship or conference championship? I think right now we would just like a trophy um, that's not $5 and bits of broken chair, although I'm thrilled to see that that's coming back. So let's just go conference. Can can Mike Riley deliver a conference championship? Question mark. Well, I think I think he can get, get us a division championship. And so from there you can extrapolate it out so you get to Indy. <laughs> You give it your best shot. Right. But I will say, you know, you and others in the Slack room know I'm a Mike Riley guy. Yeah, as uh, am I. I think after last Saturday, it kind of went from, yeah, Riley, you know, I could see us in the playoffs under Riley at some point, too. You know, I came to the kind of the stark realization, you know, Mike Riley's not the guy to get us back to national prominence. And, you know, that's okay. Because we got to play the long game here and, you know, restocking the roster and turning over the culture and kind of pouring a good, solid foundation. But let's just say he coaches, you know, until through the 2019 season. Let's say he retires at a nice round number of five years, you know, mm-hmm. being here in Nebraska. Whoever takes that job after Riley is the guy who will get us back to national prominence because he's going to have a nice, healthy culture in place. He's going to have a roster that's stocked with talent, and we're going to have our pick of the litter because we didn't do something stupid like fire a coach, you know, with a knee-jerk reaction. Sure. I. It seems like Husker fans are impatient. And, and oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, hi, I'm Captain Obvious. Um, I am too. Like, it's. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm able to, by the end of the season, I'm like, yeah, we are what we are, okay. Through winter conditioning, spring ball, the optimism ramps up. By about 4th of July, I'm usually at my family's get-together. I'm talking to 
one of my cousins about how we're going to win the whole damn thing. I've right. just convinced myself <laughs> that everyone's all of a sudden hit 99 in the ratings like on NCAA football. Yeah. And then about October of each year, I realized that, uh, you know, uh, you know, passion for a team is a hell of a drug. I, I guess where I'm going with that is because I know patience is a virtue. I'm not always most patient. I try to be patient especially with something like Nebraska football because I have zero control over it. Um, I So the question that I have, not just for you, Haas, but for any listener you know, out there of our dozens of listeners that we've got here at the Five Heart Podcast, would you sacrifice just a couple more years of Mike Riley as far as him being our head coach, like you said, writing out his contract and, and retiring – uh, and building that positive culture, that that good Nebraska culture, uh, you know, stocking the cupboards for the next coach to be in the playoff in 2020, 2021. Is, is the I don't want to say risk reward, but is is the the patience worth the payoff? Or does it have to be? No, it's, it's we we want to win it in twenty eighteen. You know, I I think it's worth the. Uh patience is worth the payoff in that case and that's assuming that things don't bottom out oh sure under riley you know for the rest of 17 18 and 19 uh you know if it's you know seven eight nine wins you know maybe you know one of those years we get to indy you know that it's totally worth the payoff you know continue to you know keep stocking the cupboards and then you know two years in college football you know it seems like an eternity you know, the 15 season seems like it was in the Stone Age now, looking yeah. back on it. But, um, you know, a lot can change. And I think if we just continue to, you know, kind of keep our heads down and just diligently work at, you know, rebuilding this program, just kind of like the old tired, worn out saying Rome wasn't built in the day, uh, I think that the payoff is definitely worth So today, game day, Rutgers. You know, it, it, it's a brand new season, so to speak. And, and theoretically, Nebraska could win out the rest of their schedule, go to Indianapolis and, you know, cause havoc, uh, wreak havoc and let slip the dogs of war if you want to get classic literature or whatever the hell that origin, you know, is. I like it. Thank you. Uh, the Scarlet Knights are are in town. What, uh, I, I mean, it's Rutgers. And for a long time, you know, we everybody's been laughing at Rutgers. But this is a Nebraska team that has lost to Illinois. This is a Nebraska team that lost to Purdue and struggles with Iowa and lost to Northern Illinois. So, you know, Nebraska is not too far off the, the, you know, I hate to say it, but they're just not far off, you know, being being the laughing stock themselves. So what what needs to happen against Rutgers, you know, besides a win? I mean, we were hoping, you know, for, for dominance against Northern Illinois. It didn't happen. So, realistically, what needs to happen today to, you know, start turning things around? Well, I think first, you know, you got to play clean and efficiently on the offensive side of the ball. And just no drive-killing penalties or, you know, just – execute assignments, which with a true freshman right tackle, even as good as Brendan Hymas, I'll be really interested to see, you know, how that works out. And, um, you know, just 
playing playing it one play at a time. That I mean, as trite as that sounds, just uh, controlling you know everything we can and just uh, God, I, I mean, this sounds like uh, was it from uh, Bull Durham when Kevin Costner teaches uh, Tim Robbins all the cliches to speak in, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, honestly, we just got to play our brand of football, like as we as we prepare to do Monday through Friday, and hope that the things that you know have happened that are beyond the 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 realm and control of these student athletes is not a distraction uh, as they move forward. I mean, they their focus, you know, as far as football goes, needs to be on football, and they can't worry about you know who's going to be the, their next, you know. AD or anything like that. They have two jobs. I always say this because, you know, I, I, I do believe in the student part of student athlete. They've got to, you know, take care of business in the classroom and take care of business on the field or in other sports, the court, you know, the sand, uh, you know, the diamond, whatever. Um, so, yeah, with, with proper preparation, wh- what do we need to see from Tanner Lee? Because we haven't talked a, a whole lot about him today. Um, there's something that needs to to happen because right now he is as advertised as he was two years ago coming over from Tulane. He's not the you know the NFL hopeful that we all thought he'd be in the off season. Um, what what does Tanner need to do to keep the past in the past and and uh, not worry about you know having shadows uh, from Northern Illinois and Oregon. Um, just really, he kind of needs to be a little quicker on knowing when to get out of the pocket, you know, especially if pass protection is going to still be problematic. Uh, a lot of times against Oregon, there were, you know, five, seven, ten yards, you know, available if he just would have tucked it and ran. And that's one, you know, one area I'd like to see him improve a little bit at. And then a lot of it's just, you know, not, not holding on to the ball, you know, too long. Then also there have been times that he trusts his arm a little bit too much to fit the ball into some pretty tight windows. So just to, you know, play with himself, you know. You're not, you know, some guys might be tempted to start pressing. It's just, you know, every every pass that he makes, it's not going to change the outcome of the Oregon or Northern Illinois game. You just got to put it out of your mind, you know. And you just got to play loose. What are you expecting to see from Rutgers? Because, you know, we – as far as previews go, I mean, what what do you know about about them, and and what do you think that they're going to bring to the field? Well, first off, with Jerry Kill being their offensive coordinator, you're going to see a pretty disciplined offense. You know, they're not going to beat themselves with turnovers or penalties, and you know they're going to just they're going to be content to line up and punch you in the mouth. You know, it's going to be a lot like kind of those Mitch Leidner Minnesota teams under Jerry Kill, and then you know. Defensively, I'm kind of little, I mean, a little bit concerned with their coverage. You know, Chris Ash, who was at Ohio State under Urban Meyer, he runs a lot of you know different coverages that you know. Well, let's face it, Lee hasn't exactly shown the greatest coverage recognition you know so far this year. So maybe we, I hate to say it, but we might get snookered a few times. You know, baited into some throws. Prediction. We're gonna win. I think. I, I think it's gonna be ugly. Uh, I'm gonna go twenty-eight thirteen. 
All right, I'll take it. Um, I also like uh, to, to see a big red W. I uh, don't want to see the fans holding on to the balloons at halftime still, so hopefully we can get on the scoreboard early and uh, often. Uh, just like voting in Chicago, it's early and often. Um, that That's a downstate Illinois joke for you folks from Nebraska. Um, they, Yeah, that's a long story. Long, long political story going back to the daily era of a uh, – Chicago. So anyway, Haas, I want to thank you for spending some time talking with me here on the Five Heart Podcast, and I know we miss Brian and wish him a, a speedy recovery, uh, but thanks for filling in and bringing your wisdom, and uh, we might be calling on you again down the road because it's always a good time to talk with you, buddy. Uh, thanks for having me on. You know, anytime you want to have me back, you know, I'll be more than happy to have an appearance. Yeah, and, uh, uh, you know, next time you're on the Cobcast, just tell them, tell them how much I talked him up because – you know, the, the stats are, are – numbers don't lie, and I know that Pat and Tweedy aren't listening to my show. So uh, so tell them that I talk them up. I'm always very uh, positive about what I say about the Big Red Cobcast. And uh, uh, I, I, anybody here listening to the Five Heart Podcast, you should listen uh, to the uh, uh, Big Red Cobcast. Although I will say, Hoss, their uh, language tends to be a little saltier uh, than what to find here at the Five Heart Podcast. You know, I think we got through the entire show without dropping a single F-bomb or really any obscenity of any kind. Usually it's in the first five minutes with the Copcast boys. <laughs> and and uh, if Brian were here, that wouldn't be the case. He He's our big swear. <laughs> but uh, I, I want to thank you oh, again. Uh, thanks again to Haas. And, uh, uh, hey, if you enjoyed the big uh, – well, let me rephrase. If you enjoyed the Five Heart Podcast, make sure that you hit that like button on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Uh, check us out, of course, coronation.com, jitterymonkey.com for uh, a few other podcasts that we do, including my other podcast, which is all about comics, movies, pop culture stuff. It's called Nerds United. You can check that on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, there's also Pro Wrestling Podcast. Host, do you like pro wrestling? Uh, as a kid, I did. Rick Flair is still a personal hero of mine. Hey, he kicked out at, at two as well. He's still with us. Uh, uh, so, um, but uh, check out the, the, this is Hoss if you're interested. Otherwise, uh, anybody else, check out my one, two, three cents, the podcast. And then uh, if you, see, if you're 26, you, so you were born in 1991, weren't you, Hoss? Uh, 90. I'll be 27 90. this November. Okay. Uh, so you don't remember 1991 in music, but over at Positive Cynicism, they used three episodes in about three and a half hours, and they broke down the music from 1991, from rap and hip-hop to country to grunge to hair metal. If it was music, if it made headlines in 1991, they were talking about it. Check out Chad Smart at Positive Cynicism. Uh, folks, uh, my name again, Greg Mahochko. Thanks to Haas Reuter uh, for joining me, and you can check out his stuff Coronation.com. Uh, just uh, search for decoding, and you'll be uh, met with a litany of brilliance, uh, the best way that we can describe it. And Haas, you're also on Twitter? Yes, at Haas Reuter. That's R-E-U-T-E-R. Easy to remember. Haas Reuter. Thanks so much again to Haas. And uh, again, quick uh, note and shout out to Brian Toll, who uh, is uh, he's not with us this week. Uh, but we know he's going to be watching the game and uh, wish him a speedy recovery. And uh, my name is Greg Mahachko. This has been the longest outro ever in the Five Heart Podcast history, but hope you enjoyed it and enjoy the show. And reminding you this week and every week that Five Heart is all the heart you need. Go Big Red! 
Go Big Red. This is a production of the Jittery Monkey Podcast Network. For more jittery shenanigans, go to jitterymonkey.com. Jittery Monkey.